Have I got a story for you. It's about a trial lawyer with a big heart. He's not afraid to cry. Has a lot of broken bones, but has never sued the faulty party. He brings combat experience to the courtroom where he always delivers. But first, speaking of deliveries, today's pod is sponsored by Mailboxes. Yes, the original inbox that used to keep your mail safely stored, dry, and away from porch pirates is today's sponsor. Look, with online ordering at an all-time high, mailboxes don't want you to forget about them. Sure, the occasional nice mail carrier may put your bills, pamphlets, and other necessary junk mail on top of your oversized Amazon packages, but that is not a guarantee. Don't Don't forget to take a stroll down memory lane on your walk to your good old reliable mailbox. Mailboxes, which have been keeping lines of communication open since before the internet and 4G, do more than hold those precious postcards your parents are sending from Tahiti, or while they're stuck aboard their cruise quarantined. (laughs) They are the vital place to post your official 911 address for the first responders looking to help you that you hope to never see unless it's in your time of need. Mailboxes are the rock-steady foundation to human communication, and they've been going strong since the days of the Pony Express. America, do yourself a favor. Go check yours today. We are also brought to you by the Getting to Know You pod. Please follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Download the pod and subscribe in iTunes, Spotify, and or Podbean. Search Getting to Know You pod. That's getting the number two, no, with a cano, the letter U, pod, and take some time while socially distancing to get close to complete strangers. And now, getting to know you. I'm going to do a terrific show today. Getting to like you, getting to hope you like me. Because I'm good enough. Getting to know you, putting it my way, but nicely. I'm smart enough. You are precisely. And doggone it. On today's show, we are getting to know Kyle. Hey, Kyle. Thanks for uh, answering the DM and uh, being on the podcast. It's my pleasure. Thanks for doing it. I feel like we all need to band together in these times, you know? No doubt. It is uh, nice to socially isolate and connect at the same time. Yeah, it's uh, actually one of my, my wife's like favorite things is to be at home. And I think we, we both, my wife and I both consider it to be we're like homebodies uh, when we're not working. We enjoy being at home and spending time at home. So uh, when we both started looking at each other, like, is this our perfect like outcome here where we can work from home? We're not expected to be places. We can like isolate, just connect with people through the internet and Dress you know, wicked just casual. be together as a family. Yeah. <laughs> it's almost like a dream come true. Sort of. Yeah. I kind of feel bad. I was talking to my boss and uh, he's like, don't worry, I'll get information to you. And I'm like, Hey man, no rush. Like <laughs> I'm actually <laughs> enjoying it. It's a, uh, it's, yeah. it's like a forced lifestyle choice that I've been trying to force 
for a while. Yeah, and that's, you know, and this could kind of weave into the story, I mean, of getting to know me, but one of the things that's going on in my world right now is um, trying to balance productivity in my job with the quality of life I want at at home and in uh, my personal life. And once we realize that we're now going to be at home, the feeling of needing to be as productive as I was when I was at my office or when I'm out soliciting business. I mean, it was in conflict now because I felt like I can't be as productive if I'm not on the same routine. It's not that I don't have the tools or the the materials and supplies and things. I'm looking at my home desk here with my envelopes on it, my stamps, my computer and whatnot. I mean, I have all this stuff, but it's just the routine is different. And so, you know, I'm, I'm personally trying to accept that it's okay to be a little less productive, you know, and I was going at such a high rate and it just seemed like there was no end. You know, how, how much can I do? How much money can I make? How many cases can I get resolved? How many trials yeah. can I get? You know, there was, it just had no end. And now this kind of comes in and, and tempers that a little bit. And I'm, I'm kind of, I'm welcoming to it. I feel like it's a good thing, it's but slow it's still a little down, bit uncomfortable. Right? Yeah. Yeah, no, it's, it's funny. I think a lot of people get caught on that hamster wheel of like, when is enough enough? Like right. when you win a hundred cases, are you done? <laughs> when you get mm-hmm. blank amount in your bank account, are you, am I good? Am I going to retire now? And I don't yeah. know if a lot of people have like that. And we're a very like goal and number driven society, but I don't know if a lot of people have an actual number or goal in mind. Yeah, that's a good question. I mean, I don't think I ever set something for myself. Uh, I remember when I first started my practice I just thought if I could just get to $15,000 in my like business operating account, I would be like, I'd be able to work as many cases as I wanted to. And because I can buy the medical records for that and pay for the materials and supplies and whatnot. And, and then it it went from 15,000 to to 25,000 to 50,000 to a hundred thousand. I mean, there's, it, it really, there was no end. And so I, as I met one goal, another one would come up and, Right. I'm all for setting goals, but I think you can get neurotic about it too. And oh, for it sure. can become an issue, you know, yeah, when Lord, you have, Lord help you if you're competitive, <laughs> well, especially in a profession you know, like, and you're like, no, 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 I got like 40 clients or, or I have this many paralegals. I can't imagine what, uh, your little competitive bars are as a lawyer. Yeah, it's a, it's, it's a pretty high bar. And especially as a litigator, um, where you're, you're trying to prove to the community that if, if you're able to handle someone's case that you'll win it right and i i try my best to steer the conversation away from winning do you know your percent like right now so what's your percent of uh victories uh 100 (laughs) i I haven't lost yeah are you serious 100 (laughs) percent yeah 100 percent in uh in 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 trial um gotcha and um do you know wonder you're neurotic like keeping that percentage (laughs) up has to like that would drive me nuts like you lose one and all of a sudden you're like man now i'm like the 98 percent guy well i you know that's a good point i mean i try uh not to not to set a uh expectation that i'm going to win and that's part of what my uh sort of unique philosophy is about being a personal injury trial lawyer specifically is that nobody really wins in a personal injury case? That's a great someone's point. been injured, no doubt. <laughs> someone and and someone's responsible for that injury. So it's about replacing what's been taken, and holding someone accountable. So when I say I've I've never lost a case, 
What I mean is I have gotten to hold somebody accountable and provided some replacement, some, not all, because yeah. never in, in any case will you ever get everything back unless you had a time machine to go back in time and put somebody back in the position they were before they were harmed. Right. You're never going to get full compensation. So it's not a win. It's it's about replacing what's been taken and 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 finding some kind of fairness that that's a moving target. I mean, it, it changes from case to case. So when yeah. I say I haven't lost a case, I mean, I've been fortunate enough to have the types of cases and clients to work for who really deserved what they were asking for. And when we've gone in front of juries and judges and, and presented this situation to them, it's been for the right reasons. And I just don't think you can lose when you do that. You know, when, when you have the right, when you're there for the right reasons, um, it's going to work out. Yeah. At least in my experience, the, the legal system seems to be, I guess, pretty when, when you get to that trial aspect like common sense can prevail most of the time it seems like like truth is yeah. truth. common sense if you get jurors there like people understand what people go through for the most part that's right and you have to maneuver through the rules of evidence and that's where the lawyers battle about legal stuff is you can't just sit around like you're at the campfire kumbayaing about what happened to you <laughs> right yeah because you got to meet thing. criteria right that's right. There's a, there are rules in place that control what you can say or can't say about a given situation. And so you have to maneuver through that process. But you're exactly right. The, the, the thing about common sense is, and that puts the jurors' minds really into great perspective, is that they're coming at it from common sense. When the judge gives them an instruction on what the law is and what they're supposed to do with the law, they don't follow it. They're not living it like lawyers live it every day and through law school and through a bar exam they're going off their gut instinct and and more importantly than uh, and some of them will consider the law i'm sure and, and go over it with each other but they're collaborating in a group setting amongst each other and they don't know each other and they've been forced to be there yeah talk about socially and awkward like just being around people awkward. deciding fates and dealing with your own stereotypes and biases along with like 11 other people and then Correct. coming together and, as a group to make a decision. Whoa. <laughs> yeah, and in Georgia, your your jury decision has to be unanimous, oh. or it's not. Oh wow, uh, valid. So you're a hundred percent with a hundred percent, man. Correct. God, that's a double standard, man. Correct. That's tough. <laughs> well, it's it sets a high bar, but it's also <laughs> like I said, it's very important to me to take a case to trial for the right reasons, um, and um, there are so many examples of why we have to go to trial and it's mostly about the analysis that insurance companies and their defense lawyers take in regard to what's the risk of them going to trial. Oh, and that depends largely on their data. And they have a lot of data on what this particular type of injury will produce at trial in this particular venue, this County, this mm -hmm. city or this municipality or whatever. So they, they That's bet they hedge their bets no on their data. But what they can't account for and what I've been able to capitalize on in my cases is how people are perceived by others. And when you have a very compelling, oh. honest client who's telling the truth every single time, it's the same thing uh, that you become an outlier to the insurance companies, algorithms and statistics and whatnot. And those cases that I've taken have been those outliers, large verdicts on soft tissue type injuries, 
um, where hey, the insurance company says that nobody will ever pay more than X amount for this case, and we end up getting five, ten times that because of the people who've been involved. Gotcha. Not because of my fancy lawyering or the rules of evidence, because of the people. You don't think it's like and, your tie selection? Like you must have <laughs> yeah, just a really I, good suit-tie combo? I wish it were because I was handsome or because I was in the Marine Corps or whatever, but I don't, I don't think that's it. I think what's it is the people that are telling the story. And all I'm doing is facilitating the story to be told. And, it, and, and when you do that, you know, you end up just sort of painting a picture, but you paint the bad stuff too. So you take away what the defense is bringing to the table by di di diminishing your client's injuries or right. – or calling me out by saying things about me, you know, these ad hominem type arguments, which come out a lot. Um, and you just sort of take that steam away from them by telling the jury from the very beginning, what's wrong with your case, what you're concerned about, what your problems are, why you're struggling with a particular issue so that they don't see you as a lawyer. They see you as a person who's just trying to bring this story to light. And you, you, I really just don't think you can go wrong if the jury sees you as a person instead of a lawyer. Juries don't trust lawyers. Most people don't trust lawyers. I mean, you even <laughs> made the comment at the beginning about it. And it's like lawyers are the butts of lots of different jokes in right. society. So as much as I can remove being a lawyer from my persona in court, the better I do. Yeah. So the more trust I get. And so I guess we can get to that. And I, I still yeah. don't know about like my formatting style. Um, to me, that was wicked interesting. I've never spoken to a trial lawyer like that and had them just be that humanistic. But your handle is the skating trial lawyer. Skateboarding trial lawyer, Skate, yes. Skateboarding trial lawyer <laughs> on Instagram. And I basically right. just mes messaged different people. I think it was on a – and I don't even know how to say the guy's name. Is it Naval or Naval? I think it's Naval, but yeah, yeah that – sort of like inspirational entrepreneur Super guy philosopher yeah. angel investor like i i came across right. him on the joe rogan podcast um yeah so i was just seeing people's comments and i'm cold messaging people hey i'm trying to start a podcast and then internet or i guess ig stalking you skateboarder marine type guy like you seem mm -hmm. a lot more than just this dorky analytical lawyer <laughs> it mm -hmm. seems like yeah you do a good job of promoting that um so I, we'll get to it then. When I messaged you yeah. and I said, hey, I'd like you to tell your story, um, what's your story? So um, we'll start from the uh, how you found me and skateboarding trial lawyer is kind of a it, – it's kind of weird to put those two things together, skateboarding and being a trial lawyer. There's I, I understand that there's some weirdness there, but I that's, and, that's and really some, And some I great am. tank top pictures, I'll add. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> there, there's something about uh, the fact that um, I grew up a skateboarder. Um, I traded my first game system. I think it was a Sega or something like that back when I was like 10 years old for a skateboard. And I just kind of never went back. Um, uh, you know, it, it's a part of me. It was something that um, I thought was was just like a cool and it, a unique thing. Not a lot of people were doing it. And um, it, it really – it's similar to being a trial lawyer. I mean, I, I consider trial lawyers to be sort of like unique lawyers in general because most lawyers don't go to trial. Most lawyers don't go to court. There's a lot of risk involved. Yeah, they're they're in just it. filing paperwork for the most part, right? Like when you hear yeah. lawyer, it's just monotonous reading and 
meeting regulations type stuff, right? Yeah, yeah, meeting regulations and um, and providing analysis on rules and compliance, and also doing paperwork like transactions for yeah, God. for 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 businesses to buy each other, for businesses to be created. Yeah, there's a lot of work in the legal field that does not involve going to court. But when you go to court and you put yourself out there, you're to me, you know, my personality as a skateboarder and then. You know, later I, I worked my way into the Marines, and I'll tell you about that in a minute. But the, the the two sort of endeavors have a lot in common. I mean, you make a lot of falls when you're in skateboarding <laughs> to try to learn tricks, right? I've broken a lot of bones. Uh, um, what was and, your and, What was the most gruesome break? Um, gosh, uh, so I was because um, I've never broken a bone. I literally have no idea what this. Is. I I won't climb a yeah. tree if it's over six feet, man. So let me live through yeah. you. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> and, yeah. And so, take me there. Um. Well, I I uh, I broke my hand. Um. Coming over, like I jumped over this pyramid. I was just doing an ollie over it, and somebody like darted out in front of me. I I grew up in Tampa, Florida, and there's a big skate park there called the Skate Park of Tampa. Um, and I was at the skate park of Tampa back before it was a, a big deal like it is today. And I just, I flew off my board to avoid the person that came in front of me Selfless. and went down and went down <laughs> like face first. Yeah. I was like trying to help them out. And I came down on my hand and like just crushed the outside bone in my hand while I was wearing a wrist guard nice. actually. So it was like my wrist was protected, but I broke my hand. Um, and how old was, are you at this point? I was probably... 13 or 14 at that time. So are you just tearing up? Or are you trying to hold back, be tough guy? Or are you trying to play it off cool because the girls uh, are looking? like? No, there weren't any girls around at that time. And skateboarding wasn't what it is today where you have like celebrities who have Red Bull and Mountain Dew and they're going to the Olympics and stuff. No, skateboarding was sort of like these are the bad kids. and So no, nobody was like, no girls were out there. But I freaked out. Yeah, and um, and and my hand was just really swollen and throbbing uh i had i'd broken my wrist before that uh roller skating and i had seen my wrist kind of make this uh u shape or like a horseshoe shape and that was really freaky but so i knew something was wrong it feels almost like you're bleeding inside um but the blood's (laughs) not running out of your body it's a weird sensation this is you know, but this is probably, I think I've broken seven or eight bones, but on this one, I just, I like ran to the front, you know, I told the guys, like, I'm sure I broke this. They have like people that work there or whatever. And I think my mom came to get me and took me to the hospital or whatever, but yeah, it was, I mean, flying through the air and having to avoid someone and then landing sort of face first from six feet up in the oh, air wow, on the concrete. On concrete. Is, Jeez. Yeah. It's, it was intense, but so was you, that you your, almost, well, I was going to say, is that ahead. the origin story of why you became a trial lawyer for personal injury? <laughs> <laughs> no, uh, in in fact, um, it took me a while. Yeah, I, sh- I should have. Like, it seems like a total oxymoron to be an injury lawyer, but to yet do these things that cause injuries because they do. I mean, you can't be a skateboarder and be afraid of getting injured. It just defeats the purpose. But um, but no, I I became a trial lawyer um, because my dad was a trial lawyer, and um, but we were estranged for most of my life. Um, so. There was a time when I became an adult that I decided I was going to try and have a relationship with my father. Oh. And so I, I went to him. Uh, he lived in a different state, and um, and I I moved to that state, and uh, I started to get to know him more, and he had a whole side of his family with 
uh, aunts and uncles and cousins and things that I had never met. Dude, that had and to so be I, trippy as hell. It was creepy and hard. Uh, there was a lot of drinking involved to kind of <laughs> numb the process back when I used to drink, and I realized that later on what the sort of what was going on there. But no, I, I made my transition sort of into his life um, because I wanted to know if we could have a relationship because I really truly missed out on, um, you know, the him tying, teaching me how to tie a tie or how to shave or what to do about girls. And just all of that was missing from my upbringing. Um, not to say that I had a bad upbringing, but it wasn't my favorite. And, um, you know, I had some struggles, certainly not the most uh, in life, but one of the things I wanted to do was build a relationship with him. And I knew that he was a trial lawyer. I didn't know what that meant really, just that he was <laughs> right. rich or powerful or whatever, and that the, all of this was going on without me. And so I got to know him over several years, and he taught me while I was in law school about personal injury. And um, so was and he was he hundred percent hundred percent like you, or no? Uh, <laughs> in fact, he he wasn't. And there's a there's an old saying in plaintiff's trial work that if you're in trial work in general, that if you hadn't lost a case, you haven't tried one. Oh. <laughs> and I just don't, I don't subscribe to that. That's like telling the Marines, you can't take that hill over there. It's yeah. Like, right. Okay, watch this, you know? So, yeah. um, but so I got into personal injury trial work because my dad was doing it and I was trying to have a relationship with him and, and, um, and he welcomed me into learning about it. Um, and I ended up starting my own practice based on sort of his leadership and, uh, and I was given some referrals from him to get started, just some smaller type, gotcha. you know, rear end type car wreck cases, which I worked up um, on my own. I didn't get any money. I had no resources. I remember I bought my first printer, um, like a big uh, commercial printer type thing that I mean, at least one I could have at home, one with a scanner on top <laughs> and all that with, on a credit card. Dude, I worked out of my I, house for I two years. totally would have thought the first purchase a lawyer would remember would be like the Mercedes or the ski <laughs> or the, you know, the golf club, country club membership. And you went commercial, commercial industrial printer. <laughs> yeah. And, <laughs> but it's awesome. still like an HP though, that you could buy from office max, you know, right. like, so, and I, I realized later that there are one, much better ones that you can rent and lease from people and Xerox and whatever. But so, yeah, yeah I bought a printer, um, and I'll never forget making my first phone call to an insurance adjuster as a lawyer with my own case in my own firm. I had no paralegal, no legal assistant, no, just my cell phone, a, a printer, a laptop. Did you think and, about um, acting as your own like secretary, saying something like, uh, please hold for Kyle, and then coming on with a different <laughs> voice, or no? No, I just decided that that, that should have happened. I would have been funny, but no, I just decided <laughs> to handle everything myself to get, and I always thought, um, through learning about leadership in the Marine Corps that, um, you know, before you can order someone to do something, you need to have done that yourself so that you right. know what it feels like to be in their position. And that's how you earn respect. And, and it will, if you don't have respect, then when you really need to give an order, when there's danger or life is on the line, you, you won't get the, you won't get the quickness that you need. You won't get the response that you need. So I thought, hey, I'll learn how to do all this, and I'll use my dad as a resource. And at the time, his wife was his paralegal, and so she would teach me a couple things too. And he still had his own firm going on where he would do what he wanted to do, work on cases he wanted to work on, and then uh, whatever he thought was 
do something he didn't want to work on, he'd give to me. Got these and so I, I just, yeah, I, I got the scraps, you know, and, um, and that, but that's how I got my start as a personal injury lawyer was by hanging my own shingle, re- getting these referrals to get started with. And like I said, I was shooting for 15,000 bucks on hand. Uh, you know, I started with zero and that's what I was shooting for. Um, and so I took me a couple of years to get to that point. My wife was working a full-time job and paying the bills until I could get to where I got a reputation. And what, what started with my dad's kind of scraps ended up parlaying into other lawyers in our area giving me their scraps. And I God, started dude. with other lawyers who had backgrounds like me, prior military, or who my dad had known through his career, and he would make a connection for me. So I would I did a lot of networking and handshaking and lunches and all this stuff and I would I would go out and say look I'll take your dog cases I'll take the ones you don't want the clients who are problems for you the ones who you don't feel like dealing with and I ended up just being able to turn those cases into much more than the lawyers who had them thought they were and they started to see that I was I had some capabilities that were unique and um, and every every person that I got a chance to meet with, whether their case was worth $100 or $10,000, to me was a potential referral source. So I treated them all like their cases were the most important thing to me. Because Spreading they like really the coronavirus, were. man, you know? Huh? Spreading like yeah. the coronavirus, right? Like you do one yeah. good thing, they tell six people, and then all of a sudden that impact rate just it is exponential growth. Yeah, it, it really, and I'll never shy away from no matter what happens with marketing and the digital space um, from the, the rule that your case results, what you produce for people is the best marketing ever. Oh, 100%, um, right? Like we're a results-based yes. society. Exactly. So I don't, I've never had a billboard or an advertisement or I've never even put a, even with skateboarding trial lawyer, I mean, it was half me just like coming back into social media, looking for friendships and getting inspired by people like Naval and Joe Rogan and whatever. And, uh, it was half that. And then it, it kind of turned into, oh, well, let me just like promote myself a little bit because I am getting some good results and I want people to know that there are different types of lawyers out there. Right. And I ended up really liking personal injury because I could be my own boss. I have no ceiling whatsoever to the amount of money I can make. Um, which is really and it's really uh, exciting to yeah, wake up no every day. There's no salary cap. God, I never thought That's about right. that. Like actually no, no not, salary cap. not being like, man, I make $35 an hour. You know, it's just, yeah. nah, I, I have no idea what I'm going to make next month. And that's pretty exciting versus the it fear is. of, oh my God, I have no idea what I'm going to make next month. Yeah. And I've embraced that. And instead of letting it consume me with anxiety or stress or fear, I have all of those things, of course, but I u- I try my best to use them to motivate me and oh, yeah, I, yeah, it's I, like sink I or swim, man, right? Like yeah. I'm a freaking and go out and get the, that dollar. That's right. Yeah, I mean, and that's how the Marines were. You know, you you sink or swim, and so I had a lot of experience with being risk tolerant through my time in the Corps and through war. Um, but I got to personal injury kind of in a weird in a weird way where I was looking for a relationship with my. So, and I don't know how this is going to work the more people I talk to if I get overly personal. Um, so if it's a, like a dickhead question, feel free to be like, sorry, man, let's move on or next question, whatever. Um, but what, what inspired, like, what was the moment where you were like, I'm gonna go get, I'm gonna go find, I'm gonna go get that relationship with my dad. Um, just woke up one morning bored on a Saturday. 
Um, no, it was always a touching some... TV show. <laughs> yeah, I, I listened to a sad song. Hallmark, thought, it is dad. Christmas time. I'm <laughs> Lifetime years old movies. and I need a dad. <laughs> no, I, you know, I think that it was just kind of like my whole life. Um, I was, I was, I was longing, you know, to have the person who was half responsible for creating me, and I didn't know anything other than what my mom had said, which weren't good things most of the time and um and my mom had her own struggles which i became the victim of a lot of times and so i was like maybe it's a grass is greener situation and here's and i had this idealized image of my dad being a rich lawyer who could give me the things that i didn't have who would who was always waiting for me to you know to to come and 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 provide for me in the way that i always wanted so I just, I guess I was just following that kind of dream. Gotcha. And uh, it was really a, um, it, it was really a fantasy, to be honest. And I wanted to see if there was truth to it. And so part of the reason why I joined the Marines was because my dad was a Marine too. Oh, man. And he, he had fought in Vietnam. And I knew this about him, um, but I'd never talked with him about it. And I think I saw my dad maybe four or five times in my whole childhood from one to 18. I don't remember when I was younger, a baby. Oh, wow. so I think he was around for some of that, but he always had um, another family. And I had an adopted brother that I didn't know about until I came up and started to get to know the family and whatever. So there's all these things that I, and I, I guess I felt sort of compelled to understand what was, what was out there gotcha. through my whole life. And I just didn't have the opportunity until I was an adult. Yeah. And uh, I, I wasn't ready at age 17 when I graduated high school to go off to college and start it then. So I went in the Marines partly to understand my dad more and to get a stable footing for what I wanted to do in life, which I had I had envisioned that if you just if you just follow the footsteps of other people, you can increase your chances of success in life financially <laughs> or otherwise. Like because, it's a path for a reason, right? Stay yeah, on the like, path. <laughs> Correct. And so, the, you know, the things I set forward Don't get for lost myself in the words. were graduate high school, military service, graduate college, advanced degree in some kind of technical field like law or medicine or something, right. but, and, um, and civil service. So I, I, I'm an Eagle Scout too. So I, I tried to put together all of these pieces that I thought were kind of like guarantees that you're going to have a a, a good life yeah enjoyable um, for because, sure yeah because so many other people have done those things and it worked out for them so long as you can not get in trouble and keep substance abuse down which is hard in society that promotes a lot of that but no doubt. there are some steps that you can take that are kind of like surefire things but it takes a while it's yeah. a long game yeah it's, it's, a, a, it's a weird it's a, investment that i well it's not a weird investment it's weird to me that more people don't understand that it's just an investment like I've always it thought really of the is. military, like, dude, that's almost one of the great socioeconomic equalizers is dude, if you are poor, join the military, you'll jump up, you'll immediately jump up one rung on the um, socioeconomic status. Immediately. Ladder. And I didn't, I didn't realize that at the time. I just thought that, and I, for a long time, I thought I would be in the public sphere, like in politics or local government or something like that. So I realized that military background, Eagle Scout oh, and, edu- so you were and, and education were <laughs> those yeah. were those were resume check boxes that needed to happen yeah, 100%. if I was going to do something like that. So um, 
so that's where it, it, it all started. But the, there wasn't a moment, I wouldn't say necessarily, that I sought out my father. It was just a combination of the way I grew up without him that just – I'm in, and I'm an adventurous person, so gotcha. it was an adventure for me to try to figure out, so, hey, is there something there? Did you have like his number, an address, an email address? Like I did. I had his number, and, um, and of course he knew – through my mom, because he had been supporting, you know, through child support and whatever. Um, so, and he would send me a birthday card every year with like five dollars in it or whatever. So, you nice. know, I would, I knew he was around, and um, and but, so I remember the first phone call I made to him as as a marine. Um, I graduated boot camp in September of two thousand one, just just before nine eleven. Wow. Um, I was home from boot camp for three days, actually, and then 9-11 happened. Um, so I get shipped off after boot camp to my job school, which was a, a – uh, my job was called bulk fuel specialist. So I dealt with aviation fuel, and I went to this school in Virginia uh, at an Army base to learn about how to deal with jet fuel, you know, testing it for water and sediment content and issuing oh. it to aircraft and vehicles. Quality you know, control. Store. Yeah, quality control, storing it in big fuel farms and whatnot. And I called my dad on the Marine Corps birthday, which was November 10th. Purposefully, or and that just happened coincidence? Purposefully. Nice. Yeah, I was like, I'm a Marine now. You're, you know, you're a Marine, and I, I didn't, I did, I asked him specifically, or told my mom to tell him that I did not want him to be at my boot camp graduation. And I, I remember at the time just not being comfortable with involving him in. In, I didn't want him to take credit for my choice of being a Marine. I was going to say, like, that would kind of be a dick move on his part. Like, you don't show up, yeah. and then all of a sudden it's like, oh, there's my son, the Marine. Like, right. fuck and, you and kind I, of a thing. I know, and <laughs> I still had a lot of – yeah, I mean, and that's part of the skateboarder in me. I have a lot of fuck you, you know, kind of towards a lot of things, like certain <laughs> rules. And, that's and what it, makes, it makes you a good lawyer a, too. It does. It makes me a good trial lawyer. Um, but so um, when I told him not to come – um, I felt later after I had gotten through in um, job school a little bit and that now 9-11 was going down. I mean, I knew we were going to go to war for sure. Um, so I called him out of the blue one night and I, we had been drinking and I was like, I just want to tell you, you know, happy Marine Corps birthday. And it was so <laughs> awkward. It was like, he was like, uh, yeah, OK. I mean, like he had been drinking, too. Obviously, he, he drinks a lot. But like it was like it was an awkward conversation. I remember feeling awkward about it. And just being like, uh, you know, so that was one of the first steps. But that's and the point of drinking, right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> to help you get through those awkward conversations. Yeah. Well, and, the, you know, help you get through the Marines in general. A lot of Marines drink. Yeah, I was going to say, is that yeah. like a straight whiskey thing for y'all or what do Marines uh, drink? Well, I, I, I drank beer. Uh, yeah, I drank whiskey too. I mean, it was whatever we were getting into that night. But, um, you know, pick your poison. There was gotcha. plenty to choose from, but yeah. So, but it, there was some awkward times in me finding out who my dad was, what happened in my mom and his relationship, and it it unfolded over time. Right. And I never I never ran away from it. Uh, I just kind of embraced it and leaned into it just to see where it would go, and and it went to some pretty high highs and some pretty low lows. I mean, over the years, we don't talk anymore. Oh, really? Um, I was about to ask that. Do you guys still have that relationship? Yeah. We don't. Um, it, it we we became more involved in business together, and uh, and my impression of what my dad thought of me was that he knew best, and he was trying 
I think maybe to make up for lost time by essentially telling me how to live my life uh, and and not respecting the decisions I was making yeah. as a man, kind of like treating me like a child. No doubt. And I and I get that that's part of his own trauma and what he's been through. Well, and and he, also, like if you think about it, I guess the relational age does not match the chronological age. So right. like if he's just getting to know you, he's looking at you like he has two years of experience with you. And I think I wonder, yeah. like on a biological level, do you just go there? I, yeah, I don't know. I, I have learned later that there are therapy resources for people who've been in estranged family relationships and that it probably would have been better for us to come together through some kind of professional help. Uh, than it would be for us just to start drinking together. I was going to say pick, so. Yeah. <laughs> so <laughs> like, up like we, wait, you mean therapy can be better than drinking with your estranged yeah, father? I know, right? It's a <laughs> you know, shocker. Uh, but, so, uh, but, 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 you know, I, I'm glad I had the experience. I learned a ton about who he is and who I am. And I made a choice that I thought was best for me and my family to move on from that phase of my life. And uh, it, you know, re required a lot of learning and self-discovery, and it's still a ongoing thing to try to deal with the fact that, hey, maybe someone isn't the person who's supposed to be the closest to you. We have this feeling and and society, cultural what norm or whatever that you know you do whatever you can for your parents and you sacrifice for them, and it's it essentially, I think it gets misused sometimes for for uh, parents or people to treat others however they want. And then expect that there's just this subservience and obedience, regardless. Yeah. And there's a there's a fine line between being a, a loyal and committed family member and then just being a punching bag for someone. I mean, and I just it's hard to, to figure out what that balance is. But um, I made what I thought was the best choice for myself, which was to distance my wife and children and myself from someone who wasn't who wasn't healthy for me. It right. became a toxic relationship, yeah, and um, and so I don't. I've worked hard to not feel guilty or ashamed of cutting out people who others might judge me and say you shouldn't do that because they're your parent. Well, and then I kind of just say, well, if he was the parent that maybe you had, that might be true. Yeah, no doubt. But he's just another person. He's, you know, so I have to protect myself. And but do the, you? the journey. Go ahead. Well, I was just gonna ask, do you have his last name? I do. Okay. Yeah, yeah. and um, and that that was a choice that my mom and him made for me, and um, and I I've been told some pieces of the story of how I was created, um, what their relationship was like, but I I really never throughout this whole it was a good seven years of me. Um, trying to have a relationship with him, never do. I never really felt like I got the full story. I always got felt it. like I got the the PR version, you know, the yeah. the story that made them look the the best. Right. Well, I and, think that's uh, probably what most people do, right? You know, there's like yeah. your story, my story, and the truth. Isn't that a saying? Yeah. Yeah, that is a saying. Yeah. yeah um, that's true. Well, and, and I guess I was asking about the name because I'm just thinking, as a lawyer, you're kind of your name is like your reputation, right? That's what you're known as. So if you're getting right. business from this guy and you're sharing the name, your reputation as being Mr. Hundred for a hundred is <laughs> like dependent on this dude's name and you're kind of not proud of that name. And like yeah. that, that 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 must be a weird conflict, I guess is what I'm trying to think about. It it was um during the professional separation. 
um, when I decided that I wasn't going to take any more referrals from him and I wasn't going to rely on any of his referral sources anymore, there was an awkward transition period where, you know, I had to say things to people who were asking, you know, what's going on without, I didn't want to disparage him. Right. And, and I, I do my best to not do that. You know, so I'm not going to air out my dirty laundry in that way. Everybody's got issues. Nobody's exempt from, um, from hurting others' feelings. We've all done it. We all do it. Some people are meant to be together and others aren't. There's nothing wrong with that. Um, but I, I took a lot of care and detail into how I chose to give the narrative of what happened professionally. Right. And so, and I was able to contain and control and separate out, you know, my professional achievements and my capabilities from my personal relationship with my dad. So right now, and I, and I, I took a, I had to be a businessman too. So I took a look at my caseload and my expenditures and my, my business in general, which was always completely separate from him. I mean, this was my, you know, my dad had his business, which was under his name and I had my business, which was under my name. So, uh, it was easy to create the separation. And most of my cases at that time, when I decided to break off were from other lawyers, not his referrals. Gotcha. And I decided that I was going to be okay. Um, if I just took these cases that were from other lawyers and yeah. from my, now, I had built up a reputation now with my own clients that they were referring cases. Yeah. yeah. So, uh, so I, I had gotten to the place where I didn't need, uh, to survive from his referral. So I actually dumped a lot of cases because I felt a, a strong conflict between my emotional abilities to provide good service for those people who were still connected to him. And I followed the bar rules and I didn't leave anybody in a position of peril. And, you know, I did what I legally uh, was bound to do to make sure that I could withdraw from these cases appropriately. And I did. And I lost a lot of money. Uh, it took me a year or two to get back to the level that I was before. But I, I literally, um, I said, it's this, my, my mental health is worth more than the, you know, six, seven figures of, of cases that I have here that are related to you. You can have them back. Yeah. And I talk about being like the fuck you skater, like mentality to give up stuff instead of just eating it and be like, nah, man, fuck you. I got it. Yeah. No, I, I just, yeah, that's the skateboarder in me. And that's the person in me that says, you know, I'm going to, uh, I'm going to fall down and get back up. Uh, I'm going to break my bone. I'm going to heal. And, you know, you, you know, the, the thing about money is that it's really, it's so powerful. Um, but it, to me, it wasn't an excuse to stay in, in a relationship that was harmful to me and my family. Yeah. hundred percent. Right. Cause at the end of the day, yeah. Yeah, the money money's gonna go away just like the stock market. Yeah, but <laughs> it, well, yeah, right. And, you know? and I, I had I had said that, and I took a lot of courses in college uh, around like epistemology, the theory of knowledge, and philosophy, and ethics, and things where we just like a bunch of nerds just wrestling with these problems about like Dude, what happens if you ever. have to, you know, if you have to kill someone or whatever. Right? Well, it's like I'd, I'd already been in war with the Marines, so I I understand a, a lot about that. You know, there's some circumstances where I'm not saying it's okay. I I never think it is okay, but this is a this here's an example of when you know it might be justified uh, in some way or whatever and so i looked at um different areas and i and i would say to myself if money didn't exist what would be what i would do in life right and i really feel like i would be an orator of some kind i would be trying to listen to someone and then convey that 
it, that that story or that issue to someone else, like a mediator or a yeah. medium of some kind. I always felt naturally comfortable in getting on my feet and saying, here's what's going on and how can we come to resolution with this? So I feel like I'd be doing something similar in a tribe right. like I'm doing now. Um, and and, <laughs> the guy I, and, the, I, and I, you'd be the guy in the tribe with the peace pipe being like, yeah, just chill. I would. Let's just yeah, chill, just, man. Let, let's, we, can, or, we can figure this out. <laughs> or if it hurts, that's okay. You know, how can we deal with this pain and not let it kill us? Right. Um, and so there were so many times in uh, in Iraq when, you know, my troops and I would just feel so defeated about the Marine Corps, about not being able to go home, about not knowing when the next attack was going to happen, when we were going to get a hot shower, hot chow. Like God, I couldn't imagine. There were so just many eating things cold that food would... and fucking like bathing yourself with water. Out of like yeah. a, a canteen, yeah, um, and uh, baby wipes and stuff, oh. and running out of cigarettes. You know, when you've <laughs> still got three weeks left to go on a on a mission. So um, these things were not uh, foreign to me. These these moments in life where you had to make a hard choice, but yeah, um, that, that's the other thing. I'm um, just going to the military because I I really feel people undervalue just the personal impact it can have in your life. Not only the financial aspect, but that resolve and grit that it can help you. If, if you're like emotionally immature or emotionally unstable, just having to deal with that shit, that grind, just puts mm -hmm. you on another level to come places and just be like, "It does." Let's we can solve this. Let's it not does. overreact. <laughs> Let's remain the, calm and breathe. It, if I had no idea how much I was going to get from this, and I didn't, I didn't join to be in a war. I joined to. Uh, get money for college so that I didn't have to depend on my parents right. for money as an adult. I really wanted to leave the nest, and I, I didn't agree with a lot of the things that I was hearing from my mom and seeing from her. I just wanted to be on my own and just out. I was the youngest of three other kids. I had a, I had a textbook, classic broken home, lots of stepdads. My mom struggled. I, my brothers and sisters are all from different dads. Um, so I was like, I want to get out of here and military is my ticket, whatever. But once the war kicked off and I was in the invasion in 2003, I was the first Marine wave in Iraq at that time doing what I thought was a, you know, when I joined, I did not want to be an infantryman because I knew that that was heavy and just, I was like, well, in case it happens, whatever, but it wasn't really on my <laughs> radar to, to be in a war. Right. Um, but I knew I wouldn't, didn't want to be an infantryman. Um, so I picked a job that was in the engineering field for the I expected to be like a combat engineer where you would frame up hooches for the troops to sleep in and build stuff or whatever. And I, and I was like, OK, well, I'll at least be able to have a trade right. when I get out because I can frame a house or something. But yeah, they yeah, made, fallback. They, yeah, they made me a fuel engineer. And I was like, OK, well, I'm going to even be further behind enemy or behind uh, in the safe zone now. <laughs> they ain't trying to blow gas, that shit so up. Yeah, right. <laughs> but in Iraq in 2003. Um, the and, and speaking of resolve, you know the Marines are the best at at forcing you to do this um, because there's such a small branch, but we have such a large mission. And uh, the Marines chose to make a certain group of, of bulk fuelers like me into a maneuvering, uh, self-sustained combat unit. And so I was given a mission called a forward arming refueling point where I would travel in a jet fuel tanker, a 5,000-gallon tanker, in a convoy. <laughs> oh, shit. In a combat yeah. zone, through combat. In a, 
Oh yeah, oh yeah. No, there were <laughs> a me. dozen of us uh, tankers, and we had our own sort of convoy with heavy machine guns and what we called a provisional rifle platoon, which was what? guys who were not infantry that were trained on infantry skills, and we would we would go and do these missions where we would set up a mobile refueling Dude, point. I gotta stop you, man. What's the mood like on that ride? Because those roads I've heard are just fucking desolate. And like there aren't really even road roads, right? Like we know roads right. here. So you some of them are. You're going um, hours out. I'm going. So it, I I can't describe for you with any more detail than just saying that there were no, there were no borders. There were no bases. <laughs> right? This was the Iraqi Republican Guard, in, in controlled by Saddam Hussein, a uniformed military with tanks and all the get up, was our opposing force. Now they're not. You know they're not the the Germans. I mean they're they're a weaker force as as far as combat history goes. So we weren't expecting to have heavy resistance. But in certain areas there there was like Nazaria and Basra were major battles. Um, Baghdad, of course, was a major battle. But um, so yes, the mood in maneuvering with five thousand gallons of jet fuel on my back no is doubt. is bucket. That's the mood. <laughs> it's bucket. <laughs> and and I can't you know and, and like what other mood the, could you get right? Just grab your nuts and tremor. Like what what, right. what are you gonna do right? That's right. And you're and, and you, Jesus. Yeah, and you, if you refuse to do your job, you go to jail. Check me out. Well, and you're also letting your boys down too, right? Because the the bond and, and the relationship is like, dude, I'm yep. here for you. Like we're fucked together. Yep. We're either gonna survive or we're fucked together. Yeah, you're soft as hell to your guys. You're 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 weak. Yeah. And and I and I didn't want to necessarily prove that I was hard, but I just I didn't want to lose the. I was a, a corporal at the time, which was a non commissioned officer. So I had a couple guys under me. I didn't want to lose their respect, and yeah. they were they were all we were all in it together. Yeah, you know. So and and we made light of it as much as we could. We joked about How things. Could you not, we, right? and, yeah, and and it was like some of the best times of my life. Just like sitting down waiting for the next mission or whatever and just throwing little rocks at the one marine that we didn't like you know just like just fucking with him all day or whatever. i mean it's like and or sitting around playing spades and just talking shit with each other until the next mortar round comes in i mean those are some of the best yeah, memories so i have with with human interaction is being with people in war just like being trying to be normal and having fun yeah no like because you got to flip I, I can't imagine that switch of you're on a fucking tanker or, you, you know, basically one dude gets a lucky shot off and y'all are fucking, you're a bomb, right? You're exploding. Yeah, Going from right. that mentality to, hey, I'm just, because at the same time, you're still like late teens, early 20s around these guys. You're a fucking kid. So like, I am a kid. Now, yeah, now, now you go 19. and, yeah, you go around and now you're just hanging out with your boys. Like that's got to be a weird switch to flick on and off. It is. And there's really no... It, it, it follows you outside of the military, too. And that's one of the things that I've struggled with is uh, feeling like I could just pick up my pack and my weapon and go, uh-huh. you know, and, and just leave everything that I've created, that I've achieved, because I'm the, the one of the few, one of the, you know, uh, unique people who've been hardened to take on that responsibility and get it done at the expense of my life. Right. And there's a there's not a lot you know even the biggest verdicts and the you know the all the money doesn't replace that feeling of being wanted and needed for that thing that nobody else will do yeah you know it's it's hard uh, to to accept sometimes and a lot of my 
friends uh, who made it out, um, they didn't make it out mentally or emotionally, or they committed suicide, uh, or you know they've they look at the time in Iraq as the highlight of their life, and I just can't do that. So we've lost touch because we're they you just, know I don't look they just stay I telling those stories, huh? Yeah, and 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 telling those stories, I think sometimes with that being the excuse for not doing more now gotcha. that they're out, you know, not, not going to that college class or getting that degree or right. having that ambition, just sort of sitting back and being like, I got, like, I've, I know people who have gotten out and done the same things I have, but then they get like these labor jobs where they're, they're treated poorly. They don't have respect. And then they, they abuse substances, whatever. And yeah, it's just like a steam spiral. That yeah, and, and and then they're looking back nostalgically at like if I could only you know yeah I'd go back in a heartbeat. I'm like, dude, I would not go back in a heartbeat. I don't want to be no doubt shot fucking glad I went through up. it, but I don't need yeah. to go through that shit twice. <laughs> I'm gonna take yeah no I'm gonna t- I, I like what General uh, Maddox says, who was my commanding general at the time. Was you know, it, later on he says you know don't look at it like post traumatic distress, treat it like post traumatic growth. Yeah, you know, find find some way to take the good from that and on but it it is a, it is still a daily weekly monthly struggle to try and compartmentalize uh that i'm here and that i um i have children and i have a career and i'm not I, i'm i'm like i feel like that warrior inside and i could go and if i was joking with my wife when all this coronavirus stuff happened i'm like i was excited for the the demise of society Bust because out it makes mop things suit. <laughs> yeah, it, yeah, it makes things simpler for me, and I'm that's my, I thrive in that chaos. Yeah. I'm gonna, I'm running towards that. You know what's pretty crazy, and I, I find myself doing this too. Like, um, so you're, you're almost forty then, right? I'm gonna be thirty-seven in June. Yeah. Yeah, and like mentally, you still fucking feel like you're nineteen riding on a tanker, and like it's like that shit's like twenty years ago, but it can't yeah. feel like it's twenty years ago, right? It doesn't, yeah. Just 17 years ago, it's March 26th right now. I was on day five of the uh, ground campaign, and um, this may have been the day when uh, the Shamal hit, which is an Arabic slang term for a bad sandstorm. But there was a there was a sandstorm that happened just the first few days we were into Iraq, um, and it it stopped all forces. We sat for almost a day and a half, I think, just letting this sandstorm pound us. It was, I, I was, it was suffocating. Um, there was a, a helicopter that had come down and was rolling in my convoy that had uh, wounded and killed service members in it who had run over a landmine. Um, and we just were, were pinned down for uh, a, a long time waiting for this storm to pass. And you guys are like setting up tents, or you're trying to stay no. like active and mobile, so you're hiding in the cabs of the vehicles. No, yeah, we're no, we didn't. Digging ditches. We weren't able to set up a camp. Um, we 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 sheltered in place at our vehicles, and oh, um, that. and I was in this old uh, fuel tanker truck that had no seal in the windows. We had sandbagged for <laughs> armor our floorboards because we didn't have up armor at the time, so all of our vehicles were armored with sandbags. That we filled. Now, did you shoot into the sandbag to see, like, if you could trust it? No, because number one, conservation of ammo is a gotcha. huge thing, and number two, it's you know, discharging of weapons is taken super, super seriously, uh, and you know, it's always a controlled thing. I always say, and, and 
all Marines would probably agree that the Marine Corps makes a fun activity like shooting. If you're into that, yeah, not fun. Yeah, right. not fun um, because of the safety protocols and because of how the discipline of treating your weapon and, and oh, the shit. and the conservation of it for preservation of ammunition. Yeah, because you don't want to be one fucking round away from needing one round. <laughs> Correct, and you don't want to be the one who who accidentally, you know, has that round go off and hurt one of your platoon members, and now you're one marine down. Oh Jesus! You know, yeah. And, yeah, and I've seen people uh, uh, haze uh, dramatically for negligent discharges, um, court-martialed, things like that. Like so the shit I'm it, suggesting, where I'm gonna shoot my floorboard to see if a sand yeah. keeps me safe. Maybe in the so, army, in some units, you could do that, but in the Marine Corps, so, you know, it, in my experience, in a large, I, I wasn't in like a very elite sort of like special for maybe in a special forces or some kind of elite unit like that you could do stuff like that but not in like a regular main line platoon and a major i didn't uh, i didn't want to tell you this but i i am that marine that you were fucking with throwing the rocks at that's why i found you (laughs) well it was a hard life for you bro for sure there was some uh there was some shit bags in the marine corps and they had a tough tough life and you can't quit yeah, no getting out. You can't be like, oh, I'm done, sir. Or, or like go that. tell the teacher that you're getting bullied on the playground. Like, mm-hmm. none of that no, shit. No, don't do that. Very, yeah, yeah, right? Go yeah. fucking deal with it. Yeah. All right, yeah. so, no, so, stay at that. Um, I shouldn't have cut you off, dude, but I t- have a tendency to do that. Um, the hunk, right. Or the shelter in place during that sandstorm for a fucking yeah. day and a half, man. Like, how are you yeah. passing time? Is it just, or is time just flying because you got all this shit to do? Well, um, no. So, tr- full disclosure, I mean, I was inside my head thinking that we were going to die. Um, I had envisioned the uh, Tampa Tribune, which is the paper in Tampa where I grew up, with the headline that said, Marines killed, suffocate to death, Marines die in sandstorm. I, I, I imagined it in my mind for hours. Talk about self-quarantine. Like, dude, you're trapped in a fucking cab. Yeah, I'm trapped with small, three other people inside small, it. I'm smaller one than a jail cell. Jesus. Yeah, it's very, very small. I remember sitting there for about 30 minutes or so, however long it was, and just watching the sand pile up on my leg as I sat in the cab. And it was a, it was a half inch thick of a, just a mound. I mean, it was coming in so heavy that you could see it build up on your on your leg or on your body like that. And the, the gas mask doesn't work for that. Yeah, right. I took out some... Uh, some uh, shit paper toilet paper from an mre and i folded it out and i spit in it and put a little water on it to try to make like a permeable membrane that i could put over my nose that didn't oh. work um and all around uh because our convoy had a lot of vehicles and whatnot and metal it the, the sand whipping through the metal made uh static electricity <laughs> and with the fucking it, fuel tankers yeah and oh you jesus you, you can't hear very well because it's like really loud um but it looked like muzzle flashes oh and yeah. and so i was in, this is me personally i know the other guys are like oh, it's just fucking sandstorm I, I, I was sleeping or whatever but me <laughs> you know i was like really on edge i was I, I i tried to take all of this seriously if we're gonna get in a firefight or a hand-to-hand attack i want to be prepared i want to see it coming i want to you know i was i was itching for that and um and it, because that's the training or whatever. Right. So I would see these muzzle flashes and I was like, is that static? Is that muzzle? And I would think that these people who are from this area who are now defending their homeland, yeah. they, they know how to deal with this. No I doubt. We're, they're ready for it. Matter of fact, they might have had like sandstorm radar and knew that shit was coming a week ago. Maybe. You know? Maybe. <laughs> like, you know, yeah, maybe. 
And and so I and I and I was really concerned about that and, and afraid. So I that's what I was dealing with at the time that was going on was uh, was was imagining how this fight was going to go down and uh, and when and where. And I, I took different positions. I was in my truck for a little bit. I got out of the truck. I put my poncho over my head. I, I tucked it under my feet and I sat down next to my uh, truck on the wheel, just leaning up against the wheel. And I had, I, the weapon was useless at that time because you can't see. So I had a, I had one of those marine fighting knives, the K-bar knives attached to my gear. So I was just like holding on to my knife, just waiting for something to go down. Wow. And, uh, and I remember somebody uh, was walking through the convoy, another Marine, but I didn't know at the time because I was covered up with this poncho. But he, he ran into my foot, kicked my foot. And uh, I, I didn't know what it was, so I, I slung my poncho off, and I took my knife out, and I held it up. Like, I just, I thrusted it towards that direction, and he jumped back. Fuck. And I, I had come, like, within an inch or two of the inside of his thighs. I was going for that femoral artery in the in the leg. And and then he leaned down, and I saw that he had the government-issued goggles and helmet on and whatnot. I was like, what the fuck? Because we were all told not to leave our vehicles. And I was right. like, all right, I'm on we had these little radios and whatever, so. Um, but he was looking for something and was lost. And there, I had people from different units with me too because I was I was in charge of refueling the attack helicopters when needed. But there were other people that were in charge of putting the bombs and ammunition on the helicopters while they were in our, uh, while they were at our uh, fueling point. And, and they're with so you we, on this convoy. Correct. Yeah. So the fucking jet fuel together. and literally the bombs. Yeah, jet fuel and bombs. We were one of the <laughs> oh, highest shit. value targets in. Yeah, in Iraq, and we were all over the battlefield, days ahead of uh, Jessica Lynch when her convoy was attacked, right. and uh, and she was taken. We were way ahead of her, and we're one of the next. Uh, we were actually put in the prone that night and waiting for an attack. They were supposed to come to us next, but it was so. That's where I was during the sandstorm. Was trying to survive in this situation that was like. Nobody knew what there wasn't like a commanding officer who was saying, "Here's what you do." Gen-. Like yeah, the experience was just like, there. We'll just wait and see. Yeah, what was it's it's exactly like the Corona stuff. Like, what is the experience to relay on in order to make a sound decision? There wasn't any, right? I mean, and like there is now. Yeah, with Corona, you're exactly right. There isn't a protocol for this. We have to just adapt yeah. as, as we go along, and that's what we did. We we adapted. But after I almost stabbed that kid. I got on top of my truck this time. So on the top of the tanker, there's like a flat walking area. And we had put our gear up there. We had a whole system, which we trained for before we went over there, where all of our hoses and our our camouflage netting and things like that were all wrapped up and then folded on top of the vehicle so that when we stopped, we'd we'd roll that stuff off, hook the hoses up, and we'd be ready to issue fuel to an aircraft in like four minutes. Wow. Um, uh, and, And cover ourselves from radar. So I got up on top of that stuff, and I wrapped myself completely inside of my sleeping system. It's called a bivy sack. It's like a Gore-Tex sack that you can zip yourself up in for your sleeping system. I just got up in that thing, and I just sat up there, and I just waited. And then it started to rain, and so (laughs) I got rained on. rain on top of a sandstorm, or sandstorm, then rain? Sandstorm, then rain. It was like lightning, thunder, eye of a hurricane type shit. It was crazy. What is what is sandstorm like this? So like I'm picturing the beach, like wet clumps of sand. Almost like sand hail now just falling on you. No, like, what no, is the it? sand the sand stops and everything that was sandy is now getting muddy. 
right? Oh. So it's not like it falls in sand clumps. Like this was now a storm. Gotcha. So the the wind from the storm kicks up all the sand and it's fucking crazy. And then after that, there was a a thunderstorm or whatever. Music. I mean, I saw snow flurries in Iraq when we were there in February in Kuwait. Uh, not, yeah. So like that area has that was another weird thing about that area. It gets really cold, and it there are things that you don't expect from the desert. Like when we got uh, close to Baghdad, we saw the um, the Garden of Eden or Babylon or whatever, and it's like it's green. There's a lot of green foliage, grass and whatnot uh, in that area, and it's it's really striking because it's desert, desert, desert. And it's like, oh, here's here's something different. Wow. Um, but the the storm comes after we get soaked, and then there's I'll never forget after the storm quits, it was night, and I come out of my bivy sack, and there's just like every single star in the universe you can see wow. because there's nothing there's no development out there there's no light there's no power and so you're just like looking at every star I right. mean and you can see satellites and you can see everything I mean it's just the, that, one of the most beautiful things well yeah so I'm, I'm in my head I'm like putting this together I'm like all right so you're on edge for like almost what 24 hours 36 hours of it was I, I gotta like fucking kill half, yeah yeah so I, anything yeah. that's coming around I gotta fucking kill like you're jumping out of yeah. tires looking for arteries to yeah. now you're looking at like I don't know feeling like an astronaut <laughs> yeah it's unreal <laughs> like, had, I mean it, it, so much of that experience is surreal still to this day I don't I don't understand it but I mean I, it makes sense when you think about what you've heard from history and books and people who've talked about war there's so many it just it takes you to the limits of existence and there's so many things that don't make sense so many experiences feelings you have that that you would never expect that you can't predict for it's just it's like a beautiful chaos yeah right and 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 you know and it's tragic but comedic you know it's just it's got so many textures to it it's hard not to be i understand a lot of guys that i meet now that are they've done and some of my friends have done this three four five deployments i met a guy on a plane the other day when i was going to st pete um who had done 18 deployments he was like a, a first sergeant in the army and he was in special forces we just randomly sit next to each other on a plane right and and he had gone so many times and i get it you know there's something about the the human experience of being in a place like that that you can't get from anything else and it, it, it just it puts so much else in perspective people stressing out about certain things here in society that you know you just go you just laugh at it you're just oh, like that's, yeah. that's just like the fucking, that ain't it like the nine like the u9 soccer coach who isn't playing your kid because they hate your kid and he's a dumbass <laughs> while not getting yeah. paid and you just yeah. want to fucking take all your anger out on that dude and you're like should we be worried about that or having a good time <laughs> yeah, I mean, it, it really yeah, gives you so much perspective. And I, I, I try to hold on to that as much as I can. But some, sometimes, you know, there's still a lot of like rage and, uh, and anger that is useful in war, but it's not useful here. Yeah, not you in know? society, and, right? Unless you're going to go right. MMA fight or. Yeah, and I, I don't, I want to like eat my brain. So. Right. Yeah. And there's no war going on. So it's kind of like, um, there's these memes out there of like a kid who's like sitting looking sad in a window and i think of marines when i see that who don't have a war to fight they're just like oh so i just want to do war stuff with my killing buddies no doubt you know it's just like so trial is like my war now yeah i, I, I bet I, i'm almost trying to picture now like the just 
almost like your heart has to be beating and racing at like that ultra survival mode while you're it. trying to win a case. But at the same time, you can't like sweat through your suit or like aggressively, like you can't combat the jurors. You almost have to be like right. a kindergarten teacher to them while being a killer on the inside. Like that has right. to be a weird ass contrast to control. It is. It is. And my, my dad being a combat, he was in Vietnam and had a combat experience. I, I, I think I learned how to do that, how to transform some of that from him. Cause the because rage has he, to be super helpful. Like, like that, that emotion has to be like, you're on, you're on pins and needles on point. You're hypersensitive to everything. Yeah. And it, it gets you, uh, it, it gets you on another plane of existence. I'm so fortunate because my wife understands that, that that's one of my skill sets and that this is a way to use it constructively and to make money Yeah, right. is, is to do trials. Uh, so she helps. And like when we have a trial in my household, we all become involved in it. My kids, excuse me, will come to court um, and watch some of it. And my wife will come there as much as she can. Usually every day of the trial, she'll, She'll help me uh, pare down my arguments and what I'm going to say, and gotcha. and it's it's like a team effort um, because but I'm you know the the tip of the spear, and and I'm out there you know and you you uh, you're right you can't combat the jurors, uh, and they don't want that, um, and you can't you can't slice and cut down your opponent either because that's not what you're there to do mm -hmm. and it makes you seem like a lawyer. Right. And, when the, and like I said, the more you seem like a lawyer, the, the less trust and uh, agreement you're going to be in with the jurors. They don't trust lawyers. They don't want that. What they want is people. And what they really want is a way out. And you've got to show that to them. And, <laughs> and the way out, hopefully, will be to write a good ending to your client's story. Well, for you, but, it always um, is, right? I mean, let's be real. Well, so far, yeah. <laughs> I mean, Dude, now the next case so you far. get, you're going to lose because of me just blowing no, up that I 100 mean, for 100 I, stuff. And you're going to be I, like, don't come find I've, me, dude. I'm sorry. I, I apologize. Know, I've, I've lost. I've, I say quote unquote lost. I mean, I've, I've not gotten the money that I thought my client deserved or, or, or the amount. You know, I've certainly had that happen. Um, and I've, I've had cases that I've invested money in, but then I, it turns out, that the liability issues can't be overcome. And so I've lost money, you know, to pursuing cases. That's another part of uh, working on contingency fee as an injury lawyer is that you don't get paid unless you get the recovery of the settlement or the verdict. Yeah. But like, so that's gotta be so helpful in getting people like, like it's almost like a real estate agent where like, yeah, you're going to work for me. And if I buy the house, then you get paid. So you better make me want to buy the house. Right. Like yeah. that, that's, I really like that. Um, I don't know, is it like a pay scale model? I don't know what to call it, but yeah, I like it's, that it's a, to it's incentivize your work. Yeah, pay structure. Yeah. It's just oh a great God, way does. to make sure, like, dude, you got to be just as invested in this as I am hurt by this. Absolutely. You you are totally right, and it gets me going, and it, it's why I'm still, you know, processing claims while there's a pandemic going on because, you know, if I'm not doing something, my clients who are already hurt but are now, like I wrote, yeah, their pain don't stop, some, right? Their need don't yeah, stop. Yeah, that's, that's a great right. point. And they don't have uh, – I have one client who's waiting for uh, me to give her the disbursement from her settlement, and she just lost her job because of coronavirus. Oh, shit. So yeah, she right? really, really needs it. Talk about and stress, right? Like like that's where you start running into these like liquor stores being essential can be kind of good because it's cool to kick back and drink. But at the same time, no job. You're worried about bills. Like people could – addiction – could spiral out of control 
easily. It really can, yeah. No, it's uh, you should sh- on, on Instagram. You should see all the lawyers who do family law ad- advertising about divorces since people are quarantined together. <laughs> it's <laughs> like, like a two for one. <laughs> lawyers will find a way to profit off this for sure. Dude, I, I mean, and, but that's but hilarious. you know my my uh, point is that I I value the contingency fee model so much for the motivation that it gives me and the incentive. But yeah. it also is so great for the client too, who doesn't have to pay anything. They don't have to do anything. Yeah, hundred percent. And and uh, and when I get to write a check to someone during a pandemic when they don't have a job, and now I'm gonna like this three four thousand dollars for most people is a couple months worth of pay. Hundred, dude. You know? Yeah, and, I, like that's one thing that made me feel a little uppity. And actually, I you, I'm, it's not like survivor's guilt, but like I didn't realize how well. I have it until when they're talking about like cutting checks. If you make over 75 grand on a single income, you're not going to get a check. I'm like, holy shit, dude. Like I'm over the -hmm. check limit. Yeah. Like it, it kind of freaked me out and it's very Mm -hmm. easy to realize that a dishwasher making nine, 10 bucks an hour, like you're that, that $1,200 check is going to make a whole fucking difference. That's could be like a month's worth of pay. Yeah. Yeah, it's true. It's so and easy I get to, to provide that for people and I take it from an insurance company. And I look, I'm not I'm I'm not gonna be an anti insurance lawyer. I, I went down that road a little bit, but it wasn't natural to me. Um, my thought is that insurers are are necessary evils, but they're businesses and yeah, we they're created bottom line this driven, system. Right? We created this, all right? So and we have it for a reason. You can't just knock on the door and get what you want. And when they advertise for being there for you and whatever that's propaganda that's right. advertising it's just trying to get you to buy something it's not real yeah what you have to do is scratch and claw and fight for it but they do have a lot of resources and a lot of the money that is uh, taken in in revenue by premiums which is what people are paying and this is the argument it's hey, like I'm a tax structure so I get what I want no doubt like you, you realize how much money the government has at a time like if the money they're putting out is real yeah <laughs> like how, based how on like everybody's happen? fucking paying taxes and when you yeah. start adding that shit up if everybody's paying insurance they got a fuckload of money that they, they can do. just kind of give out here and there yeah. <laughs> and the model is that 50 percent of the revenue is for overhead and expenses this generally you know the model is for overhead and expenses. 50% is for investment. So half of the money coming in from uh, insurance premiums is put into the stock market. I was going to say, like they just reinvest that, right? Where they're trying to grab percentages on that. So it just compounds and and compounds. and. That's right. And that is because the law says in in the business law that you've got a fiduciary obligation to your shareholders. And once you create a shareholder... And, a, and, and some of these companies are public or mutually traded companies, then it's against the law for you not to take that premium money and make more money from it. Dude, so I, that's it's the stock people the law need to, to buy. You, you can't just sit back and pay <laughs> money to claimants. That's against the law for the company to do. Wow. And people don't realize that. It's not, this is not, a, this is not a, a public resource. This is a private industry. Yeah, and it right. runs off of the, the, motive, the same motivations that all other private industries in a capitalist society do, which cash is profit. Money. That's it. That's Straight it. Straight cash money, That's homie. <laughs> yeah, so I don't, but I don't mind because, yeah, seriously, I don't mind taking a little cash money from the insurers and giving it to my client who just lost her job and who didn't do anything wrong when someone rear-ended her. Yeah, no doubt. You know, and I have no qualms with that whatsoever. It's so dramatically valuable in, intrinsically for me to be doing this type of work because it's like, 
say what you want about plaintiff's lawyers and ambulance chasing and greedy and lying and what there are people like that out there certainly yeah but there are also not people like that dude it reminds and, me of do you watch a better call saul i have not no okay. but i heard i should dude it's it, <laughs> is it, it good it, dude if you liked breaking bad so better call saul and i'm I not did. saying like you're the sleazy lawyer type but he was the sleazy lawyer guy Oh, so yeah. it's his origin story. And he's one of those dudes that helps people to win a case by whatever means. And he's the mm -hmm. dude that knows who to call and how to put things here. And he sets up like a theater, a theatrical means to just basically piss off bigger corporations so they fold. Or he figures mm. out some like bullshit. And it's endearing. Yeah. And you love this dude. And at the same time, you're like, yo, he's sleazy and all he's doing is like helping out like doing the wrong thing but it's endearing mm. because he's going against the bigger corporate corporations yeah. that you're like yeah fuck them man like they got way too much we can get a little yeah. bit of that well and they're <laughs> they're gonna do it too and i've, I've, yeah, right? I've, ta I've taken on big companies before big you know multi-billion dollar companies and it's just been me on the other side um and and i've learned that you know that even with people who are lawyers and professionals at the highest level making the highest hourly rates and whatnot they'll still lie or they'll still manipulate or they'll still withhold evidence or get you know, just get over because people try to get over it's their job to get over right correct and uh, you know you, 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 you this will not be held against you in a court of law if we say that does that apply things that you say uh, on a podcast will not be held against you in a court of law no uh, <laughs> it's gonna anything i say i've been taught uh just expect it to be read back to a jury and so i'm but i'm comfortable with who i am and why i'm doing <laughs> what i'm doing so I don't, right. but you know and, and I, I don't think that it would be unreasonable or outside of the realm of common sense let's just play that out that i am in front of a jury and i'm telling them yeah my opinion is that large corporations or even small ones um, lawyers uh, anybody who's backed into a corner and doesn't want to lose something is prone to lying or cheating or stealing or doing whatever it takes just like right. in war, there are rules of engagement, but innocent people still die. Right. You know, so I'm not going to. And, and I think that that is one of the techniques that I've developed to be so brutally honest and and to try to earn that endearing uh, favor by just saying the truth, you know, as much as I can, which is that, yes, people are infallible. And just because someone's got a big reputation doesn't mean they're not prone to lying or cheating or stealing or whatever i mean that we're all human and we're all we just made all of this up we literally made words up we made up this system it's pretty funny you know? when you think about it on that like hey you used to be a monkey and now you're a human like joe rogan does that all the time like we're fucking yeah. chimps but like yeah. if you think about it and you look at like even tribes there's a documentary on um, chimps and how they like invade other people other chimps like territories and stuff and like to go from that to I have a neighbor that I'm absolutely cool with, but would I be cool with them if there wasn't this whole structure of government? Like, what would I turn into if like, I don't know, they had a corner lot and I really wanted it. Like, would, yeah. would my tribe go over there and just fucking claim it? <laughs> would we battle Maybe. for, you know, like it is weird to think like these laws, just like money or like they're words that people made up yeah. and we're still making up. It's very fragile, isn't it? I mean, it, it really yeah. is. It It's, it seems like it's hanging on by a thread at all times, which is exciting. Um, but it's also been hanging on that way for a long time. So it's like, is there something to this? I mean, I kind of think that the coronavirus issue now is is 
you can choose what you want to think about it, obviously. And I'm, I'm sort of trying to choose to think that this is more of a, an awakening than it is a, a disaster, you know, that it's, it's an opportunity. And I think learning about how to act in war and how to survive war, you've got to, to take bad situations and make them opportunities. Oh, 100%. Um, one of the things that a famous Marine says, I think it's like Chesky Puller, one of these crazy guys who has all these medals and what he says, we're surrounded, that simplifies our problems. <laughs> and, and it's so true. You know? And if we're like, if we're surrounded right now by coronavirus, Dude, then that's that a great simplifies saying. what we need to do, which is to start at home, no doubt. you know, band together and try to be there for one another and do what we can to help each other. But, you know, I'm, I'm, um, I'm going to keep doing what I think is right. If I need to um, be more aggressive with someone in a deposition or something, I will. But I choose to take the approach of giving everyone kind of a C. And you can work your way up to an A with me or you can work your way down to an F. But everybody's <laughs> just kind of just going to start out with a C. You know, instead of like you start out with an A and then you work your way down, whatever. But everybody's just sort of on neutral playing field with me and you can earn your way Yeah, that's to uh, – so part of what inspired me to try to do this thing, um, I'm, I enjoy Malcolm Gladwell. I think he's been on Joe Rogan's podcast too. And mm -hmm. um, I read his book, uh, Talking to Strangers. Okay. And it's all about just the preconceived bias that people bring into situations. Mm -hmm. And the, you couple that with the fact that people react to situations differently based on what their experiences are. Right. So if you know, you're a cop and you're pulling someone over, they might – freak out every time a cop pulls them over and they might look nervous as hell. Well, the cop's going to take that as you have something to hide where this person is just like, I'm flipping the fuck out because I don't deal with these situations well. And people yeah. perceive it in different ways. And I couldn't imagine as a lawyer meeting with person after person after person, it's got to be hard to try to treat each person like an individual. Yeah, it's <laughs> a challenge, but it's necessary. And I have a lot of training with that. And the example I'll give is that when I would meet new Marines who would drop into our unit or I, right. I've been in three different units myself, I'd have to be their leader or whatever or them them be my leader. But you just start away. Where are you from? Right. You know, Common uh, you ground got, type stuff. Got, got kids. You yeah. know, uh, where'd you go to high school? You play sports. I mean, there's some of these just like basic things that are just natural for me. And I do that with my clients. And everyone is everyone's case is different and I, I love that I get to do different things with different people and, and they all need to be treated differently. There's no, there's no, there's no model that I've found or format to, um, and maybe like Morgan and Morgan or some of these bigger, you know, huge firms have a model for that, but I, I can't compete with that kind of thing. It's a different business, but there's no one stop shop for how to treat a client. Right. You just have to, you have to learn from them. Um, what they need and what you need from them, but I'm very honest with them from the beginning of this is a two-way street. I don't I don't guarantee any result, and you're gonna get out of this what you put into it. I don't wave a magic wand and get money. Um, you know, if you have a good story to tell about your injury, it's gonna be compelling. There's gonna be more value to it if you don't. And um, like we always say, you don't take a client who's got face tattoos and piercings all over <laughs> to the trial. But maybe that's not the case nowadays because that's, that's what the kids are doing is tattooing their faces. But That's what the know. kids are doing. How does it feel when yeah. you say that? That's what the kids are doing. <laughs> it makes me feel uh, old and wise. Um, that's and, a, 
exactly where I want to be in my life right now. <laughs> I can still do a kickflip, so I'm not worried about that. But gotcha. Um, but yeah, everybody needs to be treated, in my opinion, to their own unique histories, just like Malcolm says. Uh, you don't know what everyone's carrying around. You don't know what their story is. And sometimes the things I find out about people in my cases have nothing to do with their injuries and nothing to do with the facts of the case, but it their sharing with me and me learning about these things with them creates a situation where we now know each other, befriend each other, love each other, respect each other in a certain way that when we go in front of a jury, it seems like we're honest and trustworthy because we know. One of the, the first trial I had, the defense lawyer came up to me and said, now, did, did, you must know your client from uh, way back. Do you guys grow up together? Is she part of your family or something? And I was like, no. I just met her when I was asked to come work on this case. And they were like, what? And it was because I had learned a lot about my client's life. It had nothing to do with her case, but she told me things she had never told other people. And I, I did the same for her, partly sharing my combat stories and things like that. People don't expect a lot of that. And they're, they're appreciative of hearing things. It's not just a hey, thanks for your service, I'm going to buy you a beer. And, oh, yeah, thanks, man. <laughs> no big deal. Uh, it was a fucking big deal. Um, and it's a big deal for a lot of people. Um, so I share, and they share, and then here we go. We end up being so much more palatable to the jurors who are already suspicious of what's going on. Oh, you just want money. Oh, you're just making this. Uh, you know, they're already suspicious when they come in. I've got, a, I've got two steps back to make up for from the moment I start the trial just because I'm a plaintiff's lawyer. Um, so I do whatever I can to make sure that they know that I'm just a human being and so is my client and we wouldn't be here if we had any other choice. I had not thought about rapport having that big of an impact on it's a trial huge. lawyer, but you could totally see that because I think those jurors at the end of the day just want to believe what they're hearing, right? And you and believe they, yeah. things when you get that relationship. If you don't believe it, they don't believe it. Right. And you've got to believe it. And we, we struggle with this when we ask for a certain amount of money. Um, uh, it's, it's hard to not get rose-colored glasses and want a big verdict and whatnot by asking for a lot of money, even on a case where a client has a lot of injuries and a lot of damages. Yeah. But you have to really work hard to accept that that amount of money is reasonable in yourself because when you're asking for it, and it seems like a lot, and it is a lot to most people. You know, I had a so, juror last trial say a million dollars was a lot of money. You know, well, we were asking him for $20 million, you know, so. Well, let me pause you there because I hope someone holds this um, against me in a court of law if I, if I ever have to do a jury duty. So maybe this will get me off. But I feel like if I'm on, an, if I'm on a jury and it's a trial, I'm not giving away my million dollars. I'm giving away their million dollars. And like, yeah. like my natural or default mentality would be like, fuck the company. That person's hurt. Good. Get all the money you can. Yeah. Well, and it's weird know. that I, I didn't, I didn't really think people would have that other thought of, Oh, that's a lot of money for whatever that injury. They, they maybe not in Delaware, but in conservative rural Georgia, oh. it's, it's a big, big deal. Got you. Uh, and and that's, it, so that's true. another, that's another part of, of, playing the trial game is that the way you present your case changes depending on the venue you're in because of the people you're presenting it to. And so, and I love that there's a lot of artistic and creative 
uh, tools that I like to use and that I get to use being a trial lawyer that if I were a transactional guy just writing contracts, I wouldn't get to do that kind of stuff. So I, I love the creative artistic aspects of being a, a plaintiff's uh, trial lawyer so because of how I can create things for trial and, and present them to the, the people who are receiving it. But for the most part, um, you don't get to villainize every time a company. Right. And sometimes the fact that a company is involved is, is hidden from the jurors because of prejudice and, oh. and, and, and motions by the other side to exclude information because of its prejudicial effect and whatnot. So you're really you're confined a lot of times to, you know, putting the spotlight on your client and their credibility. But credibility is everything in a trial, no matter what companies involved or not. I mean, you can look up many cases against like R.J. Reynolds and the tobacco industry where the jury has found for the defense zero dollars awarded to someone who proved that they were addicted and that they had no choice and blah, blah, blah. And you see the the creativity of the defense lawyers and you think, you know, yeah, that's what it, that's what it means to uh, to a jury when you come in and you're not credible. The things you're saying aren't credible as much as you want to villainize the tobacco industry for, you know, advertising to kids and doing all these things. We know they do in each and every individual specific case. It boils down to those nit nitty gritty little specific facts. And it's nothing's a slam dunk, you know, and just because a corporation's involved doesn't mean that a, a plaintiff who's harmed is going to get what they want. Um, they have to be the, the jurors have to be given the freedom to come to the conclusion that your client deserved what they're asking for on their own without being told. Yeah, I was going to say, do that. So then that and would you, be the second thing, right? Like if they feel you're speaking down to them, they get that like, man, I just don't fucking like this guy. He's telling me what to think. Oh, 100% of the time you can look up all the, the scientific and psychological research about this. Jurors are going to decide with who they like hundred percent of the time. Right. Now there are other factors involved and variables, but never will they go for someone they don't like. How you know? much do you think, how much do you value the first impression of them seeing you? How, uh, what what I is that? It, I value it the most out of every part of the trial. So the first time they see me is during the jury selection process. And it's been my uh, practice all along to make that the most important part of the case. It's m way more important than... Uh, closing argument it's way more important than the presentation of evidence during the trial the jury selection process is when the jurors are most vulnerable they they're the most afraid of what's happening they're in an unfamiliar place uh, they can't leave and you are the reason why they're there me no I'm the reason I filed the case I took them away from their home oh I so you you're, you're thinking you're operating on the mentality of they're walking in pissed at you they're pissed at something, and it's probably going to be me because I'm the first one besides the judge, and they don't really have a reason to be pissed at the judge. Right. Uh, it's me who filed the case. And, and the disrupted judge their life. Them. Wow, yeah. yeah I thought about that. plaintiff brought this case. And so I try my best to give the jurors an opportunity to learn as much as they can about what's happening to them right there in the moment and connect with them in the moment. I don't, I don't say things like, you're the most important people here because our system of justice is designed to blah, 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 blah. Like, that's boring. It doesn't give them an opportunity to understand why they're here. It doesn't give them an opportunity to know when they're going to be done. So I start with things like, 
thank you for being here. This is a car wreck case. It's probably going to take about a day, and it's going to involve injuries and money. <laughs> and, and just give them the things that they – and then they start going, oh, okay, well, I'm, I'm packing. Gotcha. And I begin to be the person who's now conducting like a conductor in a train, you know, going from point A to point B. Right. I'm the one driving the train, and they need to be on board. Yeah, well, that knowledge is empowering, right? And when people feel yes. empowered, then they're comfortable. And if you're the yeah. one giving them that comfort, then they're going to side with you. That's and and hopefully they do. You know, obviously the facts are super important. Yeah, but I know. That first, <laughs> I'm speaking that in generalities. First, like evidence don't matter. The, the, <laughs> well, sometimes it doesn't. You know, sometimes it doesn't. But uh, the first impression is huge, and it doesn't start with opening statement. It starts with jury selection when. 80% of the room is not even going to be on your jury. But usually we have panels of 40 to 60 people and we pick 12 or 14 or whatever. Gotcha. And uh and but those 60 people that the, the 50 or so who don't get picked, they leave, but they've heard from you. They know you now. They live in your community where your office is or whatever. They know you're a lawyer. They can look you up on Google. That's a great point. Uh, so you're even advertising all, for yourself, man, oh in case God, they need it. Dude, that's another great point. They're all referral sources. They're wow. all referral sources, every single one of them. So you, you practice these basic things that entrepreneurs say and whatever. You listen more than you talk. You know, you respect them. You, you give them as much information as you can to quell their fears about what they don't know and things like that. But you, you have to – it's really odd, but you have to create a relationship with 60 people at the same time within the constraints of the jurisdiction you're in, sometimes it's 30 or 45 yeah. minutes. That, that's all the time you get. And then you have to, you can't ask every question in the world to get to whether or not they're biased or prejudiced. You have to be very selective with what questions you choose to ask so that number one, you get them to talk. Number two, that you get good insight into where their bias might be in relation to your specific case. So it can't just be like, what are your hobbies? You know, what does that tell you about how they're going to act in the case where you've got a broken leg? Right. You know, a better question would be anybody had a broken leg before, you know, like so there are Has anyone cases. ever been hit by a truck? Yes. You. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Anybody's family member ever been hit by a truck? You know, and in jury selection, you can sow the seeds a little bit for insurance and corporations being involved because inevitably someone will have the story that. Yeah, I got in a car wreck, but tried to get it resolved with my insurance. Had to file a lawsuit, but it got settled. You know, somebody's got that story, right? And uh, and once that pops out, insurance it sort of infects the whole pool, and now people start to realize, well, if this is a car wreck and injuries are involved, it's probably insurance. Even if they never say it, if the insurance isn't a party to the case, they know. Gotcha. Been, and they'll always ask after you know during uh, deliberations, is there, you know, some. Not always, but sometimes they'll ask, is there insurance involved? And the judge has to, well, we can't say that, you know, because prejudice. And so it's like, it, it, but the, to answer your question, the, the first impression is the most important part. And it starts before you even picked your jury. It starts with the panel of people who could be your jurors right then from the moment you open your mouth. Yeah. yeah. Wow. And yeah, when I'm doing that, I'm nervous and I threw up before my first trial, um, I, while, I have while listening place. to lose yourself yeah well now it's, uh, <laughs> do you have spaghetti on your tie time, I, yeah, that's a good one. this last time though i just no shit man i did imagine dragons like uh what's that, what's the name of that song whatever it takes that was for the last trial i had i was like to calm is, yourself or to fucking like pump yourself up like yeah i'm gonna fucking up. wreck this yeah to get pumped up yeah <laughs> 
because I, I did a crazy opening where I had 45 minutes to do an opening. Tell me there were sock I, puppets involved. No, there weren't. Um, oh. it, there were actually no exhibits, no props whatsoever. It was just me and the jerk. Okay. And uh, and I whittled it down to about 12 minutes. And my trial partner was like, no way. We got to cover this and this and this. I was like, trust me, you're not. Like, this is, we don't want to waste our time with this. And I was like, so I gave a, just a straight speech, 12 minutes. Um, and it, and I had plenty of, like, there was so much time left over. The defense counsel was like, what the hell? <laughs> and, um, Threw them off their game. They're like, wow, we're really overcompensating. This guy must did. be confident. Yeah. <laughs> and they got up and they the defense counsel got up and said, let me tell you what Mr. Moore didn't say about his case. And he rattled off a few things, but I had already said that. So, like, he, he, he didn't adjust what he planned to do based on what I had done. Uh, he just went with his canned routine. Gotcha. And that really, that really hurt him because the jurors immediately within the first you know 15 minutes of the case Dude. heard the defense counsel say, here's something that Mr. Moore didn't show you, but yet I showed them that. So they were like, you're not credible. You realize that he literally is – dude, that is the plot for 8 Mile. That's how he wins the last freestyle battle <laughs> is he's yeah. like, go ahead and tell them something they don't know about me. <laughs> So I don't know if you're aware of that or not, but literally your law life is the Eight Mile movie. Well, I've seen that movie enough times, and maybe I'm channeling Eminem. I, don't know. I like his new album a little bit. But. Dude, that new album actually, I I was surprisingly happy with it. Like the first nine track, that shooter track was one yeah. of the more thoughtful. Like I was like, oh my god, Eminem might have matured now. Yeah, I was impressed by it too. My wife and I definitely have jammed that a few times, um, and I I do like I try to make it where like a lot of lawyers will make this their whole lives and they'll neglect their families and whatever i mean my dad's an example um and i'm just i'm trying to really change the game that's which is why i've combined skateboarding and trial work yeah i i, I mean i was told my dad told me one time you need to stop skateboarding because somebody's not going to bring you that big tractor trailer case they're not going to take you seriously if you're skateboarding and i i really like at that time in my life when i was trying to really make that connection with him i, I thought about that seriously i was like oh maybe he's right Right. Maybe I should like put down this thing that I love, and you know, to like finally become, you know, this serious a grown and, up. Like, yeah, grown money up. money chasing grown up. And and the more I've thought about it in recent time, I'm like, fuck you. Right. You know, like what I, I've gotten cases from Instagram, people that have messaged me, hey, can you help me out? Skateboarders, you know, hey, I got in a car wreck. You know, I see you skateboard and you're a lawyer. Like it's why does it matter? You know that I don't get the biggest tractor trailer case or, or whatever i mean because i'm if somebody doesn't want me because i'm a skateboarder and i don't want to work with them anyway you know i mean what i do on my personal time if it's like look at my case results you know look at my trial experience that should be what what guides your decision you're, you're coming from the wrong place anyway you know so it takes me uh, to another point in life where i feel like a little bit of um survivor's remorse so like growing up you're like oh man i want to be a millionaire oh get money get money well, you get to a point in your life where you're like, dude, I feel pretty comfortable with the money I have. And like, mm -hmm. do I really want to put in the effort to get a, a million dollars to do what? To have to take care of a second home in Tahiti? To so, pay taxes on it? Yeah, right. Like yeah. all these extra things. And I, I could see in a profession like yours where there's no cap on what you can make. So, of course, you're just like, I can make money, make money, make money, make money. And then you never really get to actually enjoy the money. Yeah. And what you have, because you don't need like like Amazon fucking 50 trillion dollars or whatever. Like, what are you what are you even doing with that? Like, why? Why, why do you have yeah. that much? 
I don't know. I mean, and it, you're so right. And it's just, it's like right now trying to adjust to how much productivity I should be putting out while I'm trying to work from home. It's one of those struggles. I feel, I feel compelled to make more, make money, money, money. You know, make it. And and it's a good thing. I mean, people need it, and my clients are injured, and it's it's a it's a it's a good profession. It makes me feel good. But then again, I have a family. I like skateboarding. I like being outside. I like doing things for myself. I mean, I want to do. I don't want to just be a money machine. Yeah, you know, right. I really don't. I, I don't. And it's, but it's, it's hard sometimes. You have to really be self-aware and step back and observe what's going on. And and I just feel like some people in my life didn't, never took that step to go beyond, you know, the money machine thing and just called that good. Well, imagine but, if that was I, your I, only identity, man. Like the fact that I win cases and get bank is my identity. And then I what? And then that, what happens but, if like yeah. you when you lose that case? It's like the high school athlete that isn't an athlete anymore. Like, well, what am yeah. I if I'm not the all-star? Yeah. If coach would have put me in, we would have won state. <laughs> <laughs> that guy who's just like sitting at your local bar. I love that guy. God, yeah. That well, guy. I, I used to look up to that guy and now I'm like, I'm glad that I wasn't. Yeah. You know, I'm glad that I wasn't. Um, but so that's, you know, a big part of who I am right now is trying to, um, keep that balance i know it's a cliche thing but it's part of skateboarding it's part i like i also snowboard and surf and do whatever I, i'm all board sports do you I, also like spearfish great white sharks without a without a scuba tank because you sound like you do everything <laughs> no but uh, but one thing i did recently which was kind of out there was i went stand-up paddle boarding down a whitewater river oh and, um, it was insane and awesome i broke a rib um, but I had a great time and I thought it was like one of the most life, uh, not altering, but like enjoying experience. I felt really alive when I was doing it. The rush of the water while you're trying to balance on a board was just insane. But I, I love balancing and I'm trying to do that now in my life. I'm better on skateboards at balancing than I am, I think at my work, but it's a, something I think we all should talk about that. It's okay to struggle with with how much is a, how much is enough to make how much is enough time to work um yeah. how much is enough time to be with family you know well, that, I, might, I, that might be what this virus does man like do we need the 40-hour work week do i need yeah, to be well, in an I, office 7 30 to you know three I know. like probably not it's a little why can't we go four days right probably we're, we're not days. yeah like yeah oh my god yeah. we can get so much shit to, like so i'm homeschooling my daughter and and i teach so i also teach english and i have a pretty good like time frame in my mind of like okay but you know, this takes this long and oh it would be blah 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 it would to read a book takes this long and to answer questions say dude i'm sitting there one-on-one -on -one with this girl i'm like i just condensed an hour and a half class to like 25 minutes nice <laughs> and you yeah know, but you're like her school day is done in like two or three hours and i'm like mm -hmm. is that bad or is that okay that she gets to sleep in and then just do whatever yeah the fact that you're even feeling that and being aware that there's maybe another way that might be better and more efficient just calls into reality to me that we we're there's a lot of conformity that goes on for sure and you culture. do it for the sake of we've always done it that way correct and you don't challenge it and that's so you know going again back to the skateboarding trial where i mean the there's a part of me that just really challenges authority challenges conforming even though, yeah, I'm a member of the bar, I'm an officer of the court, I'm an Eagle Scout, I have all these kind of like 
credentials that make me the most most conforming of people <laughs> but my my goal was sort of always to infiltrate and destroy from within or <laughs> change you know from within and this is my way of doing it so when you see me at a trial you don't get a canned lawyer routine you get a human being who's probably going to cry who's probably going to be a little aggressive but in a in a very uh, tactful way when it's appropriate and who's going to just tell you what's wrong with this case, what, what I'm afraid of, um, and just be brutally honest with you. you know, And I, I just don't know any other way to do it, whether I have a $5,000 case or a $5 million case. I'm going to do it the same way. Yeah. Hey, I think um, I'm going to end there because it just sounded like a natural end point with I'm just going to cool. do it the same way. I like that. <laughs> cool. yeah. So Kyle and I kept talking for a little bit after that, hence the choppy edit. But I'd like to thank Kyle for being willing to come on. Look him up on Instagram. He is the skateboarding trial lawyer. Just search it up. Located in Georgia, in case you're ever in an accident down there. Um, remember to follow the and download the Getting to Know You pod. Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, Spotify, iTunes, Podbean, whatever. Big shout out to Mailboxes for sponsoring today's show. And I do know that the sound quality of the interview is a little off. Um, I'm trying to figure that out. Uh, the two feeds are going in like left and right. I get that. I honestly don't know how to fix it. And I don't even know what to Google in order to find, have the internet help me to find a fix. So if anyone has a low budget way of making that better, feel free to help a brother out. Bye.